Season's greetings, everybody. Thank you, and welcome back to Beyond the Well. This is an episode that I wasn't entirely sure I was going to be able to have at any point, but it is definitely one that I've wanted to do since the beginning of uh, this foundation of this show and all the work that I've, I've done has essentially led up to this moment. Thank you so much, Nicholas Shrek. I would like... I would ask you to uh, introduce yourself, but I understand that's quite a heavy task for someone as uh, experienced and seasoned as yourself. How are you doing? I am doing very well. And it's, it is midnight in Berlin, an appropriate time to begin our conversation. Um, I don't know how to introduce myself. I'm often asked to do that. And really, I, I prefer to allow the host to do that if it's required. I mean, it's, it, it's very hard to define oneself the way people see me is not the way I am. So, you know, I'm, I much prefer to let others decide how to introduce me. But in either case, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the invitation. Of course, I, although I said, wasn't sure if this was ever something that could uh, happen. I definitely did feel the energy of our meeting in uh, Los Angeles last year, which is the old Charles Manson exhibit uh, that was right. put up in celebration of the the 50th anniversary of the whole uh, case. And of course, you just mentioned it a second ago, people interpreting your work, uh, whether it be Radio Werewolf, uh, a lot of the interviews that you did during the Satanic Panic period, your experience at the Temple of Set, a lot of that is very well documented. I know me, myself being a younger generation in my early 20s or so, we look back at a lot of those interviews and make what uh, make of them what we will and interpret them in a way that is most pleasing to us or is the most informative to us. Has that been something that you've kind of allowed your audience to do as far as your work is concerned, allow them to inter like interpret it the way that they will? Yes. Yes. I think that's very astute. Yeah. I don't, I mean, only very recently have I begun to even try to explain anything I've done. And even then I'm fairly cryptic about it, but I have, when, you know, in the midst of, of the satanic panic, during the midst of Radio Werewolf, and during that period, I really didn't explain what I was doing. I just allowed people to make of it exactly as you said, what they will, because that is, what I'm doing is art. I'm not an ideologue. I'm not a politician. I'm not a rhetorician. Uh, this is not about ideas. The whole thing is an artistic and spiritual undertaking. And if you interpret and explain what you're doing, it's like, it's like you know showing a magic trick and then showing the audience how the magic trick is done or a comedian explaining why a joke is humorous. So the thing, everything I've done is part of one total gestalt. In other words, the song is not different than the television appearance. The movie appearance is not different than the theatrical performance. Everything that I've done, the book is not different than the video. It is all part of one seamless whole, even though as a person and in my own ideas of, and, and religion and approach to reality, I have changed a great deal over this long period of which I've been doing this work. Uh, it's all part of a seamless whole. So like a hologram, you can enter it anywhere and there are the same factors in it, which I would say are ultimately a search for what is essential and true beyond the deception and lies 
of this particular time period. I think that is one of the factors. There are many others I could name. But yeah, I, you know, if, if you hear a piece of music and then the musician is going along with it, explaining, now here, I wanted you to feel this emotion. And the reason I chose A flat was because of that, then it completely kills the soul of the music. So now, I believe in many ways, you know, that's very dangerous to allow audiences to decide what something is. And to tell you the truth, for the most part, though many people have understood on a deeper level what I've been doing, most have grabbed on to the most superficial, uh, easy to easy to understand, easy to digest part and run with it, even though that may not be my intention at all. And this is part of the risk of uh, of doing magic in public because it is very effective. It's very powerful. And that's all of my work, even though it may not appear to be intrinsically, is a magical operation that is intended to change my consciousness and the consciousness of those who encounter it in whatever art form I may be working in. And I'm continuing to develop into other art forms. Like I'm, uh, I've written music for dance here in Berlin, and I'm writing a new piece for uh, dance performance uh, that will be coming up in the future with Luana Rossetti, a dancer. Um, so, you know, I'm not limited by any of the things that pe people like to put you in a pigeonhole and think you are that. But I'm not, you know, I'm not that. Um, what I'm doing is very, has a very wide spectrum and could be in any field. And I think if you look at everything I do, the whole tapestry of it, from what I've done last month with my new album, Berlin Noir, which was just released on September 22nd, or the EP that I entered, that, that, that came out right before it, uh, which is... I'm Afraid of America, which is, has three songs that we did videos for that you can see on my YouTube channel. They, the nice people, and a cover version of Bowie's I'm Afraid of Americans. There are this, you know, in all of the new work, there are many of the same themes that you can find throughout the tapestry of all my work. And like many artists, I, I think I'm obsessed with certain themes. They keep coming back because they are, they are a mystery and a puzzle to me. So there's an element of personal investigation and exploration of certain themes again and again. But, you know, to get back to what you're saying, do people misinterpret who I am and what I'm doing? Absolutely. But I also haven't made it any easier, and I don't really want to. Um, you create these things, and you release them into the world, and let them be what they are. And very often the reaction is nothing to do with what I ever intended, but that they take on a life of their own. So there's two different ways to approach art. You can be the explainer who puts it in context, and that would be safer because obviously people have insanely misinterpreted things I've done. They've taken things that were clearly black humor and taken it to be deadly serious. They've also, as I've mentioned before, taken things that were deadly serious and assume I must be joking because I couldn't say anything that extreme. So these are the pitfalls and perils of not of not explaining, but I prefer to, to let these things speak for themselves.
I think you mentioned an excellent point there and something that a lot of, especially in in the West and our perception of things like religion, when we approach religion and spirituality with this, it has to have a finite end sort of, you know, heaven or hell, this, this black and white perspective, a lot of us share that same perspective can muddy the water as far as interpreting the artwork of like radio werewolf or any of the other music you've made with like kingdom of heaven, which I thought was excellent as well. It's a lot easier to, uh, dumb things down and make them as simple as possible in order to get to some sort of truth behind it. And like you said yourself, you didn't necessarily make it any easier, but I do think it's important to, when discussing uh, the immense body of work that you have as far as like spirituality and things like that are concerned as, as well to establish a bit of a timeline. And I understand that uh, the beginning of radio werewolf, which is around the time when you really started being put in the public eye, came as a result of an experience that you had in Egypt at the uh, tomb of Seti I. Is that correct? Yeah, well, the it confirmed what I was already doing. Radio Werewolf actually began as early as 1981. People don't realize it's practically a phenomenon of the 70s in some ways. And there is a lot of, you know, it is a very 70s thing because the musicians involved with it were, were coming from that generation and that... It, so in 1981, me and Nathan Pino, who was the founding organist of Radio Werewolf, and then Evil Wilhelm, the drummer, we met in 1981, and James Collard, who became the bassist and who I worked with in Kingdom of Heaven later, we all met in 1981 and started to form something. It didn't really have a name at first, uh, Nathan Pino and I worked as a duo, him on piano and me on vocals, and it was going to be called Conqueror Worm after the Edgar Allan Poe poem. And then Evil Wilhelm and Nathan Pino were working on another band that was called Pontius Pilate, two totally separate concepts. And then they sort of merged, and we became something that we called ourselves the Unholy Three after the Lon Chaney silent or the first talking movie that Lon Chaney did because we all had an admiration for Lon Chaney and silent cinema and classic horror cinema. And then I drifted away. I, I left Los Angeles. I went on a spiritual pilgrimage that utterly transformed me. First went to England, Germany, and finally Egypt and Greece. And what happened in Egypt is more that it, all, what would happen before that, we worked on songs. We, you know, we were a band. We were, we, were, we were creating a concept for a band. What happened in, showed me in Egypt, in the tomb of Seti I, and I already had these ideas. I'm not saying that I had never heard of them or thought of them, but that sound is intrinsically sacred and that sound can be used truly to transform the consciousness of humanity, and that sound also is very much the way that the gods speak to us. And without, I mean, I could waste an hour of your show explaining what's ha what happened to me in Egypt, but like a lot of mystical and visionary experiences, uh, they're for you. You know, if I explain it, people will misinterpret some of it. And I have talked about it a bit. 
But the fundamental thing was I thought I understood music before that. But before that, it was on a, only on a, on a somewhat superficial level. Though I also had another band, um, which you can find some information about on my new website, which is called Nicholas Shrek World, um, Skull Culture. We also experimented with sound as a spiritual phenomenon. But after this experience in the tomb of Seti I, in which I heard a sound that I can only say was like the music of the spheres or, you know, the, the, the ultimate cosmic sound, which I understood to be the voice of a deity. And it gave me instructions and it was, it was a full blown religious experience. Um, I had intended to stay in Egypt because at that point, that was 1983 when I had that experience. I was already convinced that the Western world was doomed and that there was no hope for it. And I can't say that I was wrong looking at it right now. Most certainly. Um, I already wanted to get out of it. And I, I, uh, my girlfriend and I at the time intended to just move, stay in Egypt and build a temple there and dedicate our life to magic and meditation and, and working with the Egyptian gods directly in their native habitat, because I already felt like the world's over. And that has been a theme in my work consistently, and I haven't changed my mind about it. So what this experience did, why it, why it led to Radio Werewolf, it isn't that the, the seeds of Radio Werewolf are not already there, but that it gave it a new, deeper spiritual direction. And it, I, I almost, to a kind of crazy degree, frankly, kind of fanatical, zealous degree, uh, almost missionary sense that I have to do this. And what I felt was that the Ronald Reagan government at that time, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to leave the USA permanently, and I kept trying to do it until I finally succeeded, like early rocketry, keep failing and trying and trying until it finally got to the moon. Um, the religious fundamentalism, the, the not so much Christianity itself, but the distortion, the perversion of Christianity that American politics is still so deeply infected by, um, I saw it as something that had to be combated. And for better or for worse, my understanding of the God set at that time was not, you know, thorough or complete or accurate completely, but he is who inspired me to that. And so the mission that I was given in Egypt was you are being cowardly to try to escape, to stay here in the desert. You need to go back and fight on enemies, you know, fight the enemy full bore. You, you can't hide from it. You have to go back and fight it. And that's what motivated me to go back. And in 1984, which is a very, you know, literally ominous year with the whole Orwellian feeling that 1984, you know, people were already predicting it to be a dark year. It seemed the perfect time. And so the radio werewolf concept came together at first because of the Christian right at that time, harping on the evils of occult music and backward masking and, you know, much like the nonsense we have in conspiracy theories today. But it was, it was much more 
doctrinaire Christian, com coming from a Christian perspective, where now this sort of belief uh, has seeped into all areas of society. So part of what Radio Werewolf's original concept of the first phase of it was to deliberately be everything that those people feared. You know, other people would deny that they were it or beat around the bush about it. The point of Radio Werewolf in the very earliest days was we will be exactly what they hate. We will make ourselves, you know, and we played it up and we did it with a certain sense of self-parody and humor, but it was played straight face. So a lot of people didn't get that part of it. But the point was to be those people's worst nightmare. That was a big part of it. It was in a certain sense reactionary to the to the fundamentalist moral majority Christian wave of the of the early eighties of the Reagan Bush years. So that was where it began, but it obviously mutated like any magical ritual. It doesn't stay the same. And as you get results when you're doing magic, which is what these performances and recordings were, were you know, full-blown magical workings, you change, you learn things about the universe, you learn things about humanity, and you adapt to them, or you should. So uh, if, that, if that explains it, that's, it's a brief description, but that's what happened in Egypt, and that's how it manifested, was basically, don't be a pussy about it, don't go hiding from this evil, and I do consider it evil still to this day, you must be fought. And uh, it became a much bigger fight than I thought it would because then the satanic panic developed and I became enmeshed in that. And that in many ways really distracted from my artistic progress and development because I was, for I mean, sort of like, um, you know, in the blacklisting period with communists when artists were forced to take a political stance. And I, I would never have intended to have to talk about Satanism and defend it and all this that I did then. It was a necessity. And when you say people misunderstood what we were doing in some of those interviews, you have to understand it wasn't fun and games. It wasn't to get attention, which we both already had plenty of attention. Uh, it was literally fighting for our lives against police corruption, uh, false accusations, a true witch hunt, which is something Americans uh, excel in creating almost every decade. There's a new, but this was literally a witch hunt. And, you know, our, our concerts were banned by the local police. There was an attempt to frame me for murder. There was a lot of stuff going on that people aren't even aware of. It was not fun. And I think people look back and think it was quaint and, you know, funny. It wasn't. It was just typical, uh, you know, behavior of an authoritarian government informed by ignorant uh, religious fundamentalism, really trying to destroy free speech and the ability to even have alternative religion. But I'm not really proud of that because I did not wish I didn't really want to become this representative of something that was forced on me by the times. And very often in life, it's you react to a negative thing rather than you're not always able to do what you want to do because an obstacle arises. And this is a very Setian thing. Conflict and war make you stronger. 
and make you see reality. So I would have liked to prefer just to have been a musician and a writer and an artist, but that forced me to speak up about it. But it's not, it's not like that was my intention or ambition ever. And as soon as it was over, I stopped doing that. And in, of course, I also don't even agree with, you know, well over 60% of what I was defending because at the same time I was learning how corrupt and, you know, unethical and horrible most Satanists were, well-known people who, who define themselves that way. And of course, I oppose all of that completely now for many reasons, one of them being that the, the devil and Satan isn't even what people think it is, but that may be too complicated. So I have very ambiguous feelings about that period. It was necessary. Somebody needed to do it. Uh, Zena was doing it even before me, and she did a remarkable job pretty much on her own of defanging the satanic panic merely by having the bravery, which her father didn't, to go out there on the front lines and battle these idiots, and she did. Um, I mean, she really made a difference in, in shutting them up because they formed a straw man, a scarecrow that they called Satanism, but when a real person showed up and refuted their nonsense, they, they were defeated. So, yeah, I think it's important to understand that was not my intention to spend any time defending or rationalizing, and it did distract from my artistic work. It definitely was, and I think it's sort of a, almost a cruel irony that I can speak for myself, again, being of a younger generation, having access to things like YouTube and going back and looking at these interviews, especially the, the two big Bob Larson interviews, which a lot of people you know, will view now even 20-something years later. Oh, assume. they view it more than, more than ever. Not more only than those, all, all of them, the Metzger interview. I mean, because of YouTube, as you, you, I think you said earlier in the podcast, um, timeline and chronology, YouTube has destroyed an understanding of timeline and chronology. So people see something I did 30 years ago and think it's what I think this moment. Or they're not sure if something I did 10 years ago was last week. And, and this is it's not only me, but many artists, I think, experience this weird phenomenon of the audience not quite knowing when you're working. It's, it's all in a timeless YouTube time, you know, unless somebody is intelligent enough to realize, okay, that's in that particular period. I think many artists have to struggle with this as a lack of seeing the work that they do within the context of the times. People discover things in a postmodern way and sort of interpret it the way they want to interpret it. But yeah, it's very important to understand that was that stuff was a very long time ago. That's not me at this moment, and it wasn't even me a few weeks after it. Well, of course, that's one of the things that I know within like the Satanic Screen, your book, uh, that when you analyzed what the devil's representation was and things like film and it being more of a broad study and even greater focus in that who really was Satan and who really, you know, the lack of information we actually have about these things. You take a look back at what like LaVey was doing in the sixties uh, and the seventies or rather not doing seeing as how he hold himself up towards the end of his life and sent Zena out to do a lot of his work. Is that accurate? Did he, did he even care at that point in time to really no. get, no, no, he. I, I don't. I don't really want to waste too much time talking about him because I've said enough about him. But um, 
No, he didn't care. He was, when I met him, he was tired of the Church of Satan. He wasn't particularly interested anymore. It was a tired gimmick that worked for a few years in the 60s that never really, well, I have to use the phrase, paid off. He wanted it to be something like Scientology, you know, that would make him a millionaire. And it never did. It just remained a rather low-level carnival curiosity that he created. And then he sort of got stuck with this image, which neither was his life ambition to be that. So when I met him to interview him for a book that I was then writing about modern occultism, which I never published, he was very disgruntled and, and depressed and not particularly enthusiastic. And it was Zena who realized on her own cognizance that the satanic panic was a real existential threat that was going to lead to people's lives being destroyed. He didn't give a damn about other people or himself. You know, he was just a hermit hiding out in his little private fantasy world. She saw the danger and she went out and fought it. And of course, and I only really mention LaVey because I remember when the brief conversation you and I had in person when, you know, you're being swarmed by other people and whatnot at this uh, gathering in LA last year, you had mentioned that you believed that the United States, the West in general was damned essentially, which is something I found very interesting hearing from you and the fact that you've been gone for so long, but you kind of see that corruption come up, not only in how we basically turned Christianity into a business, though the Catholic Church in Rome had much to do with that as well. We even corrupted our own quote-unquote spiritual system to the point where it's unrecognizable to its original, dare I say, Gnostic origins, which is something that I kind of wanted to bring up and discuss with you yeah, as well. Well, that's why I stress that I have nothing against real Christianity, but what most so-called Christians are practicing is not it. And I do believe the Gnostic approach is the correct approach, and it is a true approach, not the only approach, but a accurate depiction of reality. So people are very often surprised by that. I don't, and I never did hate or disrespect true esoteric mystical Christianity, just as I feel a common bond with mystics and esoteric practitioners. And when I say esoteric, I mean in the true sense of the word. There's much more in common with the mystical traditions of every religion than there is with the exoteric churches. So my dislike of Christianity is based on the exoteric form of it. Although I have quarrels, you know, this gets into Gnosticism, which we could certainly talk about because um, one of the projects I'm working on is a book about Abraxas, which is a very misunderstood god and central to a certain stream of Gnosticism. Yeah, just, just hearing Abraxas, I'm brought back to, I hear Bob Larson's voice in my head regaling how evil and um, that whole shtick that he had in the uh, 80s and 90s. I don't know if you know how much or what he's up to now, but he's doing exorcisms over Skype. And oh, I, I think that's yeah, just... Yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm kept informed of his latest... Con I mean, he's just a... You know what? He's just a businessman like LeVay was. Both of them are about as satanic or Christian as any one marketing a brand. And really, they're the same thing. They're just a con. They're just a way to make money. They don't particularly care about the religion they claim. To what you were saying about seeing America when you, when you have left it for many years, everything in America is a game, a show, a reality show. And the current unspeakable creature 
the reality show host that has pretending to be the president at the moment. He is America. He is exactly what America is. It isn't like there's another America, a better America. You, you get in democracy, you get what you are. He is it. And Bob Larson and LeVay are it too. They're Trump. They're the same thing. This soulless corporate greed to, you know, to, to make a brand, to be a business, to turn everything into a marketing scheme and a, a publicity um, gimmick. And I see, I don't really see any difference between Larson and LeVay. Different rhetoric, same thing. Larson's a little more successful at his scam. That's really the only difference. But this is the thing. America from a distance, just it's like an endless bunch of used car salesmen selling some worthless snake oil, literally, in recent times, literally uh, fake medicine, just as it was done with the original snake oil salesman. That's what, when I look at America, I just see vulgar salesmanship with no depth. Everything is a, is a reality TV show there. Well, in essence, that can, you can take a look at, you know, the Satanic Bible, for example. And I did want to point out, like, there were multiple times throughout the many interviews that were done, whether it would be with you or Xena or someone like Boyd Rice, when they would talk about this sort of Satanic millennium that is to come. And I think if you look at America now, even though it's always been in the state that it's in, it's progressively, I think, getting worse. Oh, did they not? At, yeah. Did they not at least predict that to some extent? Is it not a satanic age that we're living well, in? Well, yes. In the, in the, uh, maybe we were meaning that in a positive sense, but I would say in the literal true sense, yes, it's a world of what the U.S. has become, of vulgarity. Yeah, it, it is. It, it is. It is evil and demonic in the worst way, not in some glamorous, interesting way that people that, that emulate demons would think, but a truly destructive and demonic force. And so to that sense, this feeling that that was going to happen is true, but it's not a good thing. It, it is the destruction of that particular civilization, which, as I said in our discussion in Los Angeles, uh, why is America damned? You know, look at the slaughter of the Indians. You want a Holocaust? You had one for hundreds of years going on. Who cares about that? Whoever mentions it? Who makes Hollywood movies about that? Who talks about it? The blood, you know, of, of entire tribes that were wiped out for hundreds of years is and, and their magical prowess. You know, these people were not ignorant of sorcery and magic. They cursed their enemies. And you're seeing, like Malcolm X said in the 60s, the uh, coming home to roost is what's happening. So America's karma, you know, we could go on about that for hours. Two atom bombs on, on innocent civilians. Uh, these are not things that karmically will not be forgotten. Well, of course, when you make that I mean, big of an impact, on, we, could, yeah. we could go on and on about all of them and that there's no need to. You can, if you're familiar with history, uh, America's been one of the most destructive forces in history because of its power, for one thing, and but because of its ignorance, its incredible pride in its ignorance. You know, it's, it's, it's like having a, a child with an atom bomb and that's, and that's the world that it's given us. 
playing tennis with an atom bomb essentially. And then when right. it goes out of bounds, you just wipe your hands of it and said, well, it wasn't ours anyway. So it's okay. Right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, no. So yes, America is paying a karmic debt for many, many, many causes and consequences that go back centuries. So, yeah. So I have to make it clear. I never thought it was a good idea from the beginning America. It's like a lot of people talk about, you know, we lost America. I don't, I'm not particularly impressed by the founding fathers or the idea of democracy. And also I'm a monarchist, so I don't even necessarily think it was such a great idea to form this Republic with a kind of sort of democracy in it. I'm not a Republican in the true sense of the word, meaning in a Republic as ancient Rome had a a democratic and Republic ideas of government. Uh, I believe a monarchy is a, much more sane way to run things but that's a whole other topic well i I think you can even take a look back at of course the example that uh, i would i like to cite when we're talking about how we have the whole reality a tv show host as a president i came across as many have of your appearance on uh, wally george several appearances on wally george's uh, television show in the 80s and i was just taken aback especially the year that I discovered those was the year Trump became, you know, elected. And as a young person looking at the hysteria around me, I I took a look at this man with like six or so ex-wives who stood up on some sort of moral high ground and did what he was doing. I know where you're going with this. I've thought thought for years that basically he was the prototype. Not that I think it was intentional, but that there's some sort of, Jungian archetype of this particular kind of Republican clown and Wally George was definitely in every way, you know, the hair, the ex-wives, the egomania, although honestly off the air, Wally George and I did become friendly and we did occasionally see each other socially and, you know, ran into each other at, at events. And he was actually, I mean, maybe this is also like Trump though, he didn't, he believed what he said while he was saying it, but he was actually, you know, he invited Radio Werewolf on again. And even we had an, on his radio show, he um, another time interviewed two of my girlfriends about group marriage on his show. So he kept, you know, if he hated us so much, he certainly gave us a lot of publicity and he did that deliberately. You know, he knew he was making us more, popular by making us more hated, which was our whole modus operandi, of course. Our, our, the way we presented ourselves was not to be loved, but, but to, be, to be hated and to be feared. And he, so he contributed to it. So that is a difference. He, he knew he was in show business, you know, and he, he was perfectly cordial to me backstage and in our private meetings. You know, it wasn't like a real battle. It was much more like professional wrestling than uh, ideological commitment. I always but, knew that he was behind stage shaking hands with the sicko freakos that he was yelling at on stage. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah, he had, yeah, I mean, he did, he, he was a, you know, a Republican and all that, but he was mostly an entertainer and he knew, but actually this is the way that conservative politics needs a demon to hate so does so do democrats by the way i'm not letting them off either i'm just saying that kind of combat tv 
and and then talk radio with Rush Limbaugh and these other blowhards who are all in a similar vein, Geraldo Rivera. Oh, conservatism man. conservatism requires what what can it be unless it's always scolding you about look at this horrible threat. It never is something positive in itself. It's always a fear of the other, this, you know, this terrible thing, whatever it may be, you know, whether it was the John Birch Society in the 50s, thinking that Eisenhower was secretly a communist or the unspeakably idiotic QAnon bullshit of this (laughs) current moment, which I parody in my recent video, They. That was excellent. Yes, absolutely. That um, was excellent. um, Yeah. And you can see that on YouTube because I did, I mean, we're talking about politics, but I have to say I'm not a political person. I have utter contempt for political parties and politicians of all stripes. Um, And so that video that I put out, I put out this EP on July 4th on Independence Day, I'm Afraid of America. And it's really probably the most political thing I've ever done in that the double feature video that we put out with the nice people and they is mocking both the right-wing conspiracy theorists on one side and then the politically correct, you know, do-gooder zealots on the other, who I see is exactly the same. There's no difference between them except their, you know, cookie-cutter ideology, which is all about emotion and feeling and not really any kind of cogent program. But... The problem with all politics is this dualism is in this kind of American grandstanding populist politics, which require, instead of dealing with just normal, sane matters of governance, like keeping the infrastructure going, the education system, making sure roads function, making sure the various things you need for a society to function properly for the betterment of the average citizen, which is all a government should be doing, these ideological crusades about moral issues and all that requires a demon, requires the evil to be fought. And that, you know, that is intrinsically not the way reality is. So that's, that's the similarity you see in all of these, uh, yeah, these American witch hunts, this constant create creating of a, of a wildly exaggerated false enemy and then making your crusade to fight that false enemy be of, of urgent importance. And if, I, any, if anyone still falls for this tired old shell game, you know, they're a fucking moron because <laughs> how many times can you keep falling for it? There is it's a completely empty theatrical gesture and it keeps happening again and again. Well, unfortunately, Nicholas, as a uh, college student right now in America, I can tell you that that same trick is being pulled. It will likely keep, be keep being oh, yeah. pulled no, for generations will. to will. come. Yeah, well, because, well, one thing that is lacking is critical thinking. And I don't think most people even would know what that is. It's, schools don't teach critical thinking anymore, and they used to, probably up until about the 1940s, how to think how to learn, how to discern what is a reliable source and what is not, how to use reason and logic to make sense of, and not emotion, to discern what is true and what is not true, or what what can you, can we know the full extent of the information 
that we're absorbing. Who, where did it come from? Why should we believe it? What are the sources? These are things that almost nobody takes time to do anymore. It's just base. I mean, that's not some kind of amazing spiritual awareness. I'm talking about logic, reason, thinking things through, making sure the sources are correct. Who said what? Why did they say it? What vested interest did they have? What are they trying to get across with it? You know, right. these nobody asks those questions, and this is why America particularly has turned into this ideological battlefield between two irreconcilable and equally insane forces that are just all emotion and no reality. Well, and I think that that theme of sifting through the corruption of the system and seeing and asking those actual honest questions and trying to get to a logical and a reasonable conclusion, as opposed to the sensationalized agenda driven sort of uh, product that you're being served up because everything has to be bought and sold. I think that's an excellent theme and overarching theme of a lot of the work that you've done, especially with, of course, uh, the Manson file, your magnum opus, so to speak, and also uh, a friend of yours, an associate of yours, which has a lot of uh, similarities in work, uh, Pew Eatwell's book on uh, the Black Dahlia, Black Dahlia Red Rose. Yes, yes. I, I did recommend that. And I did an interview with her on my radio show, which we will be reviving eventually, but I haven't had time to pursue. But yeah, her book about the Black Dahlia and the Manson file are about, uh, they're about the same thing. Is a particularly intrinsic American corruption and a creation of myths, glamorous, evil myths that are sold to the public for sensationalism to cover up much more evil things that, you know, the supposed nice people are doing. And the Black Dahlia and the Manson case uh, coming out of Los Angeles, the world of illusion and dream making, and, you know, because of the Hollywood film industry, which is all about scripting a false reality, they're very similar. Yeah, and that's, that's very true. Both books are talking about the same thing, is how a myth was projected to cover up the malfeasance of people who the police and government didn't want you know, people to know who they were, which that kind of conspiracy happens all the time. This is not the kind of insane QAnon-type Illuminati nonsense. Powerful people try to hide their crimes all the time or their complicity that certainly does happen and i think that is one thing we can maybe credit younger generations with a little bit especially we've seen a lot of conclusions have been drawn with uh, the manson case and the epstein case and a lot of the weinstein case even mm -hmm. there's a lot of corruption that is being brought up as it inevitably inevitably does i mean even with manson yeah. we're starting to see a, a different perspective being taken Absolutely. Well, part of it is that he and Bugliosi are not here anymore, and people are then able to look at it from a, as I've said in the book, from a historical rather than a hysterical point of view to a certain degree. And as I mentioned in um, my lecture that I gave for the 50th anniversary in Los Angeles, I think Epstein and Weinstein make it much easier to the extent that they went to cover their crimes and the complicity of the media and a frightened entertainment industry people who went along with them and kept their mouth shut that so they knew what was going on. Now that people know that, they find it a lot easier to believe 
that the likes of Roman Polanski and Robert Evans and, you know, many of your favorite 60s rock stars and movie industry people covered up what really happened to protect their own asses. You can see that that happened with Harvey Weinstein and people who knew exactly what he was doing. And in the same way, the Manson case is an open secret, just exactly as I even heard in L.A. in the, you know, in the 80s. I knew what Weinstein was up to from people I knew in the movie industry. There's no secret. You just, it's an industry town and people don't talk about anything that will endanger their career. And that's exactly what happened with Polanski and Robert Evans and, and other people, you know, who you'd have to read my book to, to understand who are a bit more obscure. But I should point out that the Manson file, last edition was printed in 2011. And this final ultimate edition of the book will, you can pre-order it now. If you go to my website, you will find where you can pre-order it. And um, my website is Nicholas Shrek World, and you will find exactly where you can, you can pre-order the Manson file, which will be available after November 11th, which is Manson's birthday, but also that will be the final publication of the Manson file. So people shouldn't, they're always asking, when is it going to come out? It is completed and it will be released on November 11th. And so you can pre-order it. Well, I very much look forward to that. I already have my copy reserved. I only have, I never got the chance to look at the second edition. I still have the uh, first edition that I got. Mm -hmm. That was uh, one of the original copies from the eighties. And even that was very honestly jarring to look at this perspective that I had never really, of course, none of us have ever really taught much about that. And me mm -hmm. living as close as I do to LA, although I'm right. not in LA, the corruption and the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the general dis disgust of that area sort of emanates through to the, the surrounding areas as well. And right. I, I did want to ask specifically with the, uh, the Manson case, because the Manson file being it's well over a thousand pages. This, this new edition is, there's a lot of information, a lot of research that was conducted over a very long time. And you even mm -hmm. became uh, friends with Charles Manson as well. I was always interested to ask, how did that, what initially caused you to become interested in this case and what led to you right. actually becoming well, friends with someone like yeah, him? I'm, I'm glad you asked that actually, because in 1988, Basically, how the first Manson file came about is Charlie, at the time I got to know him, was looking forward to the release of a book called Manson in His Own Words by a former criminal associate, an ex-con named Newell Emmons. And a book came out and he hated it because the editors had changed it and he felt that Emmons had betrayed him. It's complicated, and I tell the whole story in my book. This was the context and time in which I met Charlie. And in his outrage about it, he said to me, after we'd known each other for about maybe not even a full year, but something like a year, why don't you make really Manson in his own words? Because that book isn't, and it isn't. It's, you know, I don't know if you've read it. It's a very inaccurate distortion of the way he spoke. It's It's clearly you know, ghostwritten. Uh, why don't you do really Manson in his own words? So that was the original impetus for the Manson file was his own suggestion. And I had been gathering in uh, the Radio Werewolf Youth Party 
I had been gathering statements of his that I thought were of philosophical value, and that was released privately to members of the Radio Werewolf Youth Party and friends and associates and supporters. And it was like a pamphlet. And that pamphlet became the section of the Manson file called The Philosopher. So those two things sort of merged together. And it was very quickly done. It was like it was done as an antidote to Manson in his own words. And now you, if you look in context of that, you can see that the point was to show, and it had never been seen before, this is the original, authentic, unedited voice of Charles Manson, not somebody interpreting it through Ed Sanders or Bugliosi, but and no one really had ever heard that before, because even on TV, he was censored. So that it created a huge shift of understanding in a certain amount of people who were capable of it, as did my documentary the next year, Charles Manson Superstar. But to get to your question, in the new edition of the Manson file, in the previous editions, the 1988 edition, the point was, this is what Manson really is, what he really believes, what he really thinks, not what you have been told he thinks, and you may hate it still. You may still find it obnoxious and horrible, but it's not what you think it is. That was the only point of that, was to say this is the real person. At that time, that was unknown. Then by 2011, over the years, I had amassed so much information about what the crimes actually were about, which completely contradictory to the official narrative of Bugliosi, which luckily many people are now starting to doubt. But in 1988, when I first went on a current affair and said, you know, to millions of people in America that the that Bugliosi ran a show trial and that it was a fake trial, you know, is considered a complete lunatic, you know, a Manson apologist and, and, a, and worse, you know, it was considered an insane idea. Now, many people are starting to see that that was in fact the truth. Um, so the things that I realized about the case and things that I'd come to learn that led me to then finally release the Manson file in 2011, because I felt I had a responsibility to make these things known that were not known before. But how I got into it is interesting. I'll only tell you one little part of it, because this just happened a few days ago, and I think it is very relevant. In So in the new edition, I wrote a chapter, because people are always asking me that, about the detailed way in which I got into this. And to use the cliche, of falling down the rabbit hole, which is, you know, nothing could be more perfectly describing the experience of, of plunging into the Manson universe. What originally got me into it? And I, I explain all of the, you know, I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it until I met and befriended Charlie himself. And, and that went even deeper into other areas. But what, the initial thing, and why I think it's particularly relevant, because this just happened, was this. In, I went to Paris in 1969, in summer vacation in August, the first week of August, 69, because my parents were great Francophiles, and they wanted to show me their favorite city. So I went there, and to make a long story short, there was a horror movie theater, and in the 60s, I was a total... Of course, and still am, but was 
you know, utterly caught up in the monster mania of the 1960s, this fascination with horror movies and the macabre and vampires, werewolves, etc., that was mixed with the occult revival very much. So also an interest in witchcraft, sorcery, ceremonial magic, the devil. And so there was this theater in Paris that only played horror movies, which to me was like paradise on earth at that time. And I went to it to see a perform- uh, um, showing of Polanski's film, Dance of the Vampires, or Fearless Vampire Killers, as it's known in America, which is the first time Polanski worked with Sharon Tate and, and where you know they fell in love on the set of the film. And a lot of the basic causes and conditions that led to the murders happening are basically due to the making of this film, Dance of the Vampires, which is interesting because the vampire archetype keeps coming up in the whole Manson story, strangely. Not with him, but as I explain in the book, it's something that just keeps, it's, it's, a, it's a certain theme within the, the whole mythos. So Dance of the Vampires is how Tate and Polanski met, which intrinsically, you could say, the whole thing wouldn't have happened had they not met. So other things happened on the set of Dance of the Vampires that led directly to the crimes. For instance, an actor named Ian Quarrier who is in the film, was in Cielo Drive right before the murders. He came by the house after. His role in the drug dealing network was very important to what happened and why the murders happened. He was in that film. So I see it. I'm seven years old and watched this film in a Paris movie theater. And it created a feeling of dread and terror that had nothing to do with the film itself. It was some kind of premonition or message, I'm quite certain. It, it, because it was, you know, if you, have you ever seen that film? I have not. I've only recently yeah. been getting into uh, Polanski's actual film, having been right. hearing about the history right. and whatnot, so, but I have not, no. Right. Yeah, so it's not, it's, it's actually a black comedy. It's not a frightening movie. But I felt this sense of dread that I never felt before and almost never after. And I didn't know what that meant for a long time but of course that weekend the murders happened in los angeles and i was in paris which is the birthplace of roman polanski and in many ways i think people are wrong to assume that this whole saga is about charlie manson he's actually a side player to roman polanski's entourage moving to los angeles and how they got involved in drug dealing and how they met Tex Watson and Linda Kasabian, Manson is very much peripheral to the causes of the murders, not that he wasn't more than capable of harming other people. So in many ways, it was symbolic that it was in Paris that this happened. And I became fascinated with that film because of this. And then to, to make a very long story short, in the 90s, Zena and I befriended the star of that film, an actor named Ferdinand Maine, who played the lead vampire figure, Count von Krolock, in the film. We got to know him, and we knew him for a while. And then one night, we took him out to dinner to the Magic Castle, which is a, you may know, like the headquarters for stage magicians in the world. 
And it happens to be located right next to the apartment house where Charlie shot the drug dealer Bernard Crow in 1969, which sort of set the whole thing rolling, literally right next door to it. So we took Ferdinand Maine there to see the magic show and for dinner. And in the midst of the casual conversation, he mentioned, because well, we brought up Manson, he wasn't particularly perturbed or one way or the other that I knew him was not a big deal to him. He just mentioned, I always remember how he said it. He said, you know, what, what was reported in the newspapers, none of that happened. It was quite different. And he told us about meeting Polanski and Tate in London. And I explain all this in the Manson file. I, I won't repeat it here. It would be too long. He said he basically had a premonition that something terrible would happen to her when he met the kind of people that Polanski knew in London in you know the mid-60s, a few years before the murders, and that he was not surprised that something happened. But we weren't quite clear what he meant. I mean, at that time, I'd heard theories and rumors, but in 19, you know, early 90s when we, or mid-90s when we had this conversation, I didn't know what the murders were about. Charlie had told me certain things that disputed the official story, but we didn't really get into it in detail. He was saying these were not random strangers. They knew each other and that it was a drug deal. And he furthermore said it was an open secret among Polanski's friends and everybody in that world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll who were part of this party scene that Manson and these other people involved were a part of. So, I mean, now that I have shown that to be true, I've done enough research on it that I believe that is absolutely what happened. At the moment, it was shocking to hear a friend of Roman Polanski, someone who knew and loved Sharon Tate, he really did like her, this actor, you know, this was not a Manson supporter saying it. This was someone who knew them saying, I know for a fact, we all know that was a drug deal and that was covered up to not make, you know, to not destroy people's career. So then he introduced us that day to a friend of his named Gene Gutowski, who was one of Roman Polanski's closest associates. And this is all revealed in the book. I couldn't talk about it because in the, in the last book, I revealed some of the information, but I couldn't reveal who he was because he told us, don't identify me until after my death. And he has died since then, Gene Gutowski. So I get much more into what he told us and why it is very credible coming from someone who knew Polanski that well and who was admitted he was part of the conspiracy to cover it up. But that's what his job was. So... The th thing is, this what I experienced at seven years old in August of 69, seeing this film with Ferdinand Maine and Ian Courier, produced by Gene Gutowski, and the weird premonition and feeling that I had seemed to me to be fulfilled by the very people I'd seen in that film 30 years later telling me in the very symbolic locale of the magic castle of all places, a place of illusions and hidden tricks to, to conceal and misdirect, that those are the people who revealed what this case was about. And they read that really opened the doorway to my further research. And, and then my talking to Manson, confronting him, basically, we had sort of angry 
discussions at first about, okay, what, what is this all really about? When I presented him with names and facts, he began to slowly admit things. And over a long period, including after the book came out, when he read the book, he then would correct, revise, and became quite forthcoming about things that he never had been before. So that's how I got into it, literally, was that film, even before the murders happened. And then the pro- I describe in the Manson file, in this original new chapter that I added, all of the equally strange and synchronicity-laden experiences that led me deeper and deeper into, you know, finally meeting Charlie. So now the the punchline to this is there is some mysterious force which Zena has called the black hole about this thing where synchronicities and uncanny coincidences, you could call them. Charlie even was aware of it. He called this mimes when it would happen. So a few days ago, I am proofreading the part of the book which I'm telling you about, in which I'm describing how this film, The Dance of the Vampires by Roman Polanski, was, as I say in the book, like um, Alice in Alice in Wonderland is seven years old when she falls down the rabbit hole, and I was also seven when that happened. It's what led me into this thing. So I'm proofreading the part of the book about Dance of the Vampires, Paris, Polanski, all that. I checked into a hotel to work on the proofreading undistracted because sometimes at home it's very easy to be distracted from that kind of focused work. So I thought I will go to an unfamiliar place and just be a proofreading machine and finish it, concentrate only on doing that. I go to a hotel sort of at random, not far from where I live in Berlin. And the first room that I'm put in, the key doesn't work. So the woman downstairs in the reception says, I'll give you a new key. That's odd. So she gives me a new key. And the room, I walk into the room. This is to do proofreading about Polanski and Dance of the Vampires. On the wall are... It is illustrated with images of Polanski's theatrical production of Dance of the Vampires. The odds of that happening are zero, you know. And I got really a chill seeing it because, again, I felt like there is some mysterious force here that is way beyond what people think when they think they know there's something strange about the Manson story, something much deeper than people realize, because that kind of thing happens to people who look into this thing. And Charlie himself, as I said, was very aware of this. So just because that just literally happened, I think that's a good indication of the, the unexplained, uncanny aspect of the Manson phenomenon. That is incredibly fascinating to hear. I know when you start actually researching or studying or you know starting to developing a sort of spirituality for yourself you start to notice the little patterns and the occurrences and specifically with a case like this that has taken up a good portion of your life and is something that you are well known for at this point you know even being a seven-year-old child and getting that I've had moments like that that I can recall when something happens or it's like a premonition of some kind when you are hit with this sinking feeling the whole Manson right. case, even though 
the, your perspective and the uh, work that you've done in explaining what actually happened is relatively Occam's razor. It's pretty straightforward. You can see the, the corruption with the drug dealers. There's a, it's a big story. There's a lot to cover. But at the same time, it's a lot more of a simple explanation than what we were given Whoa, with the Bogliosi oh, thing. Well, that's what I'd say. I mean, authors are supposed to um, be trumpeting how shocking and incredible what they've proven is. And what I'm saying, no, what I've proved, what I've shown, I mean, this isn't a theory. This is what people who knew Roman Polanski told me happened. It, you know, it's not, it's not like something that I would have dreamed up and then tried to prove. These are things that people told me happened and Manson begrudgingly, not like, you know, people I think also think, you know, I'm like this drooling Manson disciple. We argued all the time especially about truth and about what is the case about impression that I just diligently wrote down whatever Manson told me as if it was the gospel truth. And that was very far from the truth. And he, he was not thrilled about me realizing and understanding for sure what happened. He had hinted at things. He had told me many conflicting things. I mean, he definitely made it clear to me, that Tex Watson was responsible for that particular murder and Kasabian and not him. Not that he was at all ashamed of the other crimes he did commit, which is why I believed him. He never said he didn't do the things he did do, which he was proud of them even. So that was why I was believed him. But when he was confronted with the grubby banal details, which I've said this many times in lectures I've given about the case this is happening tonight in your city somebody didn't pay a drug dealer and somebody got killed right you know is there anything more banal and common than that i'm sure that's happening outside as we speak <laughs> yeah absolutely that's what, that's what i mean i mean there's apps this thing that has become this huge gigantic myth people you know and i've i've said this before but i want to say it very pointedly people have written reams about the way Manson was raised and his life in prison, uh, occult, processed church, satanic influences, the OTO, um, LSD and brainwashing, and now recently and absurdly the CIA, mind control, uh, race war, the 60s, the counterculture. What what do all these things, you know, what does the Manson case say? What does the murder of Sharon Tate say about the end of the 60s, the meaning of the counterculture, the Vietnam War, and on and on and on. But you know what? If you look at the details as I have and talked to the people involved, I would say the main, you know, you've heard all these things. You've heard endless speculation about all that. What it's really about is meth is a horrible drug. And Tex Watson and Linda Kasabian and Susan Atkins were high out of their stupid little minds on meth that night. And they went to rob some drugs. And this is also something happening all around the world at this moment. As people should know, with the meth epidemic in America, it makes you violent. It makes you paranoid. It makes you crazy. It's a totally worthless drug. It's like the opposite of the spiritual drugs, psilocybin and mescaline and LSD. It's, it's a destructive, truly demonic 
because it's completely worthless. It's just a poison. And this is the simple care, you know, carry away from that whole thing is this. And, and you can look at the way the crime was done. The repetitive stabbing, all of that is very typical of meth behavior of these incredible rages and, you know, un, uncontrollable wrath and violent episodes that meth users will have, especially when they're, you know, mentally unstable as Kasabian Watson and Atkins certainly were. So I, I agree with you. It's very simple. It's Occam's razor. It's nothing, there's nothing mysterious about what happened. There are aspects of the crimes that I cannot explain, but they're not, they're, they have more to do with hidden criminal connections and underworld and mafia background than they have to do with anything supernatural or philosophical or revolutionary. And on both sides of the equation, the Manson fanatics that would like to see the crimes as some sort of noble thing to free Bobby Beausoleil, I'm sure you've heard that, which of course there was this little window dressing aspect of that in that they put the blood on the walls to try to look like the Gary Hinman murder. But that was not the purpose or the motive. That was an afterthought. It was not the intention. You know, so people get, so people glamorize it and try to make it sound like in any way that these scummy, you know, drug retaliation murders that every gang does every day is nothing interesting about it, really. It's a debt that was owed and it leads to violence, as as illegal drug dealing often does. Um, so I think that's an important thing about that particular crime. There are mysteries about it. There are inexplicable things I still can't quite understand, like William Gerritsen's role in it. There are things I can't. I wouldn't even try to theorize or guess about. We don't exactly know what Steve Parent was doing there. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting he could have been much more involved in what was going on than we know. Um, but we can't prove that. So, you know, there are mysteries, but they're not the kind of mysteries people think. So those are the two things I wanted to stress as, you know, I know people are looking forward to the new Manson file, but this, there are two sides to it. On one hand, there is this weird uncanny thing like checking into a room with images of Dance of the Vampires when you're going to write about Dance of the Vampires. That happens all the time. What the hell is that is very far more intriguing to me than it isn't just a story about brainwashed hippies in a, in a cult ranch. You know, it's something much deeper and stranger than that. But what it is has never really been touched upon in these popular accounts of it. And then secondly, that the thing that really happened that made it infamous, which is basically the murder of a beautiful young woman, if it hadn't been that, as Manson said, he said if that he said something like if that if she hadn't been an actor, you guys never would have heard of this thing and nobody would have been busted, he said. And that is totally true. No one would have cared, but wouldn't have gotten the media uh sensationalism that happened because of her happening to be there by accident. So, you know, the two things, there's something stranger about the whole thing than you know, unless you look into it. And at the same time, it's much more ordinary, just typical street drug, 
you know, paranoid meth thinking leading to murder and crime. Well, how not fun is that? I mean, yeah, this crime happened because of a drug deal gone wrong. People high out of their minds and they went ahead and do the things that people high out of their minds tend to do. There's there's nothing glamorous about it. I mean, it's in the other interesting thing, finally, that I'll say about it is that Manson specifically banned meth from and speed of any kind from the ranch because he had seen even in Haight-Ashbury how it destroyed Haight-Ashbury. And there's a certain aspect to the whole Manson saga that is a battle between the psychedelic consciousness expanding drugs, which I believe are potentially positive and a, a good manifestation that happened in the 60s, although it was horribly misused by Timothy Leary and and exploited and, and should not have been done in this mass democratic way. And it's a battle between the psychedelic consciousness and the speed consciousness, which is a restrictive consciousness, not not an expansive one, uh, one that makes you practically creates a kind of toxic narcissism instantly. You know, if you've ever dealt with anyone on meth or speed. Um, Unfortunately, I yeah. Think, yeah, I think that's an important part of what this is about. It's like a battle between these two. This Every drug has a spirit. So the psychedelic drugs, which can lead to liberation and awareness and as cliche as it is, love and meth, which leads to paranoia, mistrust, you know, delusions of grandeur and murder and hatred. So that that's something I really contemplate a lot, knowing the sordid details of it. I think that's a very important part of what this is really about. Well, and the uh, reflection on Los Angeles as a whole, as an entity, because it's more so an entity, I think, than a uh, a place. Um, mm-hmm. Just the culture of that area as well, and as we've already discussed, a lot of the corruption. You see a lot of the similarities, again, to bring the Dahlia back up. Um, you mentioned the, one of the reasons this case became infamous was that a young, beautiful, and famous woman was the target. And the essentially the complete opposite was true with the uh, the Dahlia, and she was in fact lambasted in the media and uh right but yeah. but both of them were i mean sharon tate was actually if you really look at the contemporary she wasn't quite famous yet she was nearly you could she was nearly she was known but some of the headlines said actress slain not even her name she was not world famous at that point none of her films were great successes she was known if at all as the wife of a famous director but actually and we pia eatwell and i discussed this their sexuality and the almost pornographic way that the media exploited the death of elizabeth short the black dahlia and sharon tate those are very similar you know they they did have sordid sex lives it's true but that was what was stressed, you know, and in almost true crime porn about the dead body of two beautiful women is what. And I had an epiphany about this when I was first doing the Manson file, 1988. I did an interview. I think the last thing I'll say about the Manson file for now, I was doing an interview, I think in Pittsburgh, a TV interview promoting it. And they get you know they gave you a nice hotel 
and a free bar and a car to drive you around and a daily allowance. And I met the makeup girl from the TV show. I asked her out. So we were up in my hotel room in this, you know, nice hotel room with a private car and being treated as they do, you know, as, as guests on these shows are, even though they were confrontative to me, they put you up and treat you well. And that night after this, I was thinking, laying in bed, that the only reason I'm here is not because of my writing or any great insight in the Manson file. It is still the fascination with the murder of a young woman and that there's nothing good about it. There's nothing that should be glamorized about it. There's nothing that should be romanticized about it. I had a very clear vision that really, that it, without her, without the meaningless and pointless murder of this woman who, ha who was there by accident, as I explain in the book, she wasn't a target. And in fact, unfortunately, her presence there is what led to it turning into a murder. She wasn't supposed to be there. That's something that I think you can't wish away, you know, so that's a very ugly part of this that really would would any of this be a myth 51 years later if it wasn't for her you know and the photogenic quality same with the black dahlia if if some postman was cut into pieces and left you wouldn't hear about it it's it's this pornographic obsession with the death of young women in those two cases that made them legendary and same with the most you know, the granddaddy of all true crime things, Jack the Ripper, where, the you know, the murder of young women or, or middle-aged women, too, are is glamorized. So that's, I think, an unsavory aspect of it all that a lot of people want to shy away from. But I, I had this very clear idea that this is, you know, it's blood money, you know, that this is this is still based on a, on a meaningless, cruel and pointless murder of of an, you know, an unbalanced guy on meth stabbing this woman to death. There's nothing, there's nothing you can make poetic or romantic or interesting about that. Absolutely not. I think one of the things we can sort of round out on is the, uh, the denigration of the woman, the female, whether that be the archetype or the, the spirit or even right. like spiritually speaking, it's, I know Pew said plenty about that in the interview that she did with you. And I know that you being a, mag a magician for much of your life, a majority of your life, um, right. you have always been one to uh, speak of the, the beauty of the, femi of the feminine. Well, that, as you can maybe say. that's what we should end on. It's yes. The, I mean, I was saying at the beginning, so this brings us full circle. One of the main themes in my work is the uncovering of truth, of taking a topic that people believe they know and revealing that it's quite different and that there's a hidden truth. But actually there was a review of my EP, The Futura Model, in a German music paper called African Paper that I would say captured something about my work. You've just mentioned it. But the veneration of the goddess, the veneration of the feminine power, of seeing the feminine as something divine, sacred to be worshipped, that is definitely throughout all my work, too, although because of the very sexism and misogyny that most people are blinded by, they often don't see that. But that is really, you know, a, a red thread throughout all my work is the worship of the goddess, which is intrinsic 
to the left-hand path in the true sense of the word. So, yeah, I think that's that's a good place to end on. That is very important, and you can hear it in my most recent albums, and you can you can see it in most of my work. That that is a key to my magical activity, and really, that's to a certain extent what the left-hand path is all about for those who truly understand its roots in eastern tantra which is what it comes from it is not you know not black magic not satanism those are misunderstandings that came from occult groups like theosophy and the golden dawn so yeah i mean even when i returned to doing music in 2014 publicly the first concert i did was a concert with john murphy that was a more than a tribute, uh, almost a religious devotional ritual to the feminine divine, and where I where I did cover versions of the female singers that inspired me to become a musician in the first place, like Nico, Debbie Harry, Marlena Dietrich, and many others. So that I deliberately chose that as my way to re-enter music. So yeah, the the worship and veneration of the feminine is important, and in the Manson case, of course, it's it's the quite the opposite. Most certainly, I think uh, just on a level of personal interest, you mentioned uh, Miko and John Murphy, which are both excellent uh, musicians and you know, on their own right. But um, mm -hmm. your return to music in 2014 was that. I know Kingdom of Heaven came shortly after that, and right. I was always curious uh, to understand your perspective on that. That to me is probably my favorite of your uh, musical endeavors just uh, in terms of musical composition and of course you working with sound in the unique way that you do uh how did that come about and what was the uh, history and impact of that which which one of those two do you mean uh well kingdom of heaven as a whole like the oh, okay. uh, album that you did with okay that. well no that was very simple is that james collard who was the bass player for radio werewolf's first incarnation and i got back in touch with each other about the endless negotiations to release the first radio werewolf album which fans of my work will know is like an endless you know uh, obstacle no it may never happen but in either case we got back in touch around that time had not spoken for years and immediately because we did used to compose together many like for instance buried alive was a song that we both did together a lot of Radio Werewolf music was a collaboration between James and I. So really all that happened as soon as we started talking, the way we think in terms of music, uh, musical collaboration came immediately. We just started writing songs like we had years ago. It just happened very naturally and smoothly. So unfortunately it was a one-shot thing, but I'm very proud of it. And I do agree with you. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I, I'm basically satisfied with most of my work, but I do think it's a, a high mark. And it is now available uh, on Spotify and all of the usual streaming platforms. So Kingdom of Heaven's album, which is called 23, and that came out in 2015. <laughs> but yeah, that was right after my return to music, which is basically what I've been devoting myself to since. And um, during this COVID nightmare i really was mostly in the studio recording so i'm still recording new music and um my new album berlin Noir, which came out as i said on the autumn equinox was recorded 
during the lockdown and during the COVID, during the height of all that, and the previous EP, I'm Afraid of America, as well. So the main thing I'm concentrating on these days is music, and I think I will intend to do that in the future. Well, I'm very much excited for it as a fan of Berlin Noir, the Futura model, and then, of course, I'm Afraid of America, all excellent releases as a big fan of Phil Noir myself and uh, just hearing it sonically represented in the way that you do in the uh, epicenter of it in Berlin, which by the way, you guys have handled the whole pandemic thing a hell of a lot better than we have. We haven't really done much of anything. Uh, so props. Right. Uh, I've, I've entered, strangely, that's been brought up a lot in several interviews lately, but I have to say it's getting worse again here. It was under control. And now, I mean, the government is a little more sane in its handling of it than then they're in the land of the free, but it is, there are there is a new spike in cases because uh, unfortunately people are being quite irresponsible because it's gone so well in Germany. I think they thought, well, we can relax our guard, and they did, and now there's there are new cases, unfortunately. So hopefully, hopefully that will be kept under control again. But it's still very much a you know a danger. Well, human arrogance will always play its uh, role in well. It's it's mostly at this mostly at this point in Berlin. It's young people who felt impervious to getting it, who as soon as the lockdown was lifted, just went out and partied as they do in Berlin all the time, and and that has been a big part of the spreading of it. But anyway, so I did. I sort of did want to end on the spiritual note, and again to think of the veneration of the goddess as an a, you know, intrinsic part of my work. So, yeah, I want, I want to end on that note. Well, of, Basically, of I think it's important, too, to say this is a very dark time in human history in many ways, I mean, more, than, more than most in most people's lifetimes. There have certainly been worse, but for most people alive today, this is a very uncertain and chaotic period and i just want to end on the note of whatever spiritual tradition you find i think it is more important than ever to start doubting that you can count on the material world and it's very important that people look into the spiritual world and the inner world because ultimately that is all we really have the outer world as we can see totally unstable totally unpredictable so I, I just want to end on a note of encouraging when people are looking for a way out of the despair and uncertainty and economic, medical, in every way, cultural collapse. And the only solution, many people ask this to me, so I thought I should say it to a wider audience, is you've got to look within and not without and find the spiritual tradition that works for you. Mine is tantric Buddhism, but... You know, for many people need to start asking themselves the important inner questions and not being overly concerned with the outer. So as a spiritual, absolutely. Yeah. As a spiritual practitioner myself, I want to thank you for those inspiring words that definitely needed in times like these. And again, to thank you for taking time out to come on this here, this show. It's been incredible getting to actually sit down and speak with someone who I've uh, been a great admirer of their work, whether it be with Radio Werewolf or your interviews or lectures or whatever. I've been a longtime supporter and I look forward to hearing and speaking with you again in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, 
Thank you. We certainly will. And I, I appreciate your time. It was nice meeting you in Los Angeles fleetingly and uh, good to get to know you in more depth here. So thank you for the invitation. Many blessings to you and to all of your listeners. Many blessings to you as well, Nicholas. Take care. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.